well, go ahead and grab a seat over Lake. It's wonderful to be with you today. My name's Mike. I'm one of the pastors on the team. And if you want, go ahead and grab your notes out of your handout. And you will see that we are, we've gone about halfway through this incredible book called Colossians. This was a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Colossae. And he, um, it, it's really his manifesto of the supremacy of Jesus. It's this incredibly rich Christ-centric theology, so it's what we go after here at Overlake, and the last four weeks have really been powerful as we have done a deep dive into what it looks like to, to really believe that Jesus is above all things, that Jesus is over all, and, and if you have actually been able to catch those, we're glad if you've missed them, they're online, we'd love to encourage you to, to jump back in and just make sure that you're recognizing how important it is for us to have this Jesus-centric view of ourselves, our identity, our one another. Another and uh, and the universe in general. So um, that's where Paul has gone thus far. But we're going to see that he turns the corner just a little bit, and now it, it's going to start to be filled with a really practical kind of a lifestyle behaviors that flow out of a Jesus-centric worldview. So it's going to get really practical, really relevant, really quick. But before I jump into that, a quick story. I knew coming into this year of 2018, I knew something was going to happen because my wife, uh, he, she told me that it was going to happen. And so that's how I knew. And she, and she said that uh, this is what's going to happen in June of 2018. We're going to have a graduation party for my daughter. And we're going to have it out in the backyard on the back deck. And it's going to happen in June. And, and she told me that plenty, plenty of time in advance because she knew what I knew, which was that part of our deck was rotting at the time. And so I knew that there would be a new deck involved in 2018. And so uh, we, we went ahead, and, and, and one of the things I knew is as we were going to strip away the, the rotting deck, I also knew that some of the siding on the side of my house that the deck was connected to also had water damage. So I knew that we were going to need to peel that off as well. So I, I hired a buddy, and he pulled the deck off, and he pulled the siding off, and then we found that the water damage was a little deeper than just the siding. And it had gotten into the framing. And so we had to pull this whole wall out. And, and then we had to reframe it all from, from the, you know, the foundation up. And, and that actually meant replumbing a little bit and rewiring a little bit. And, and, of course, the reason why there was this water damage is due to the 1979 gutters that were still up and being ineffective. And, and so, of course, we had to replace those as well. So... Bottom line, new gutters. Oh, and there was a window that, that it was all rotten as well, so that had to be replaced. So, so new gutters and a new window and new wiring and new framing and new plumbing and new siding to build a new deck so that I could have a party. How about a show of hands? How many of you have ever had that experience doing a home project? Yeah, exactly. Well, you jump in and it's, it's more is involved. It's going to be more time and more cost and, and more difficulty and more hassle and more inconvenience, more expertise required, all that stuff. Here's the bottom line to that story in the Howerton home is that we are actually thrilled that all of that work got done. It's been an amazing gift. We, we like love the new deck. Like we're out there all the time. I told you last week I was writing my message out on it in the sunshine. Like it's just something that's so wonderful, but it took a lot more to get there than we thought. And the reason why I start with that story is because that's like our spiritual lives. 
See, we, we come to Jesus and we think, you know, I know I'm not perfect. I know I, I'm going to need some work, Jesus. Probably just like a paint job. You probably just need to repaint me, you know. Or, or maybe, we, how do we hide the stain in the carpet? Or maybe hang a picture over the hole in the wall. Like, it's not that big of a deal. But we come to Jesus and Jesus is like, I'm going to have to take this thing down to the foundation. Right? Jesus is like, oh, you know. Because Jesus, we just want a little something to make us a little better. But Jesus is not interested in us just being a little better. Jesus is not interested in repainting the shack, as it were. What Jesus wants to do is extreme home makeover. That's what he's looking for. And so, um, and that's what the Apostle Paul is going into. But, but what's interesting, before we even get into this, the, the recognition is in order to do what Jesus wants to do in our lives, there must be some deconstruction that begins. There, it has to start with, with some removal. And so that's the first fill-in, the deconstruction. And deconstruction is WWJU, what would Jesus undo, Okay. What would Jesus undo in our lives? So that's the first truth here. And, and then Paul, as he's, as he's writing to the Colossians, he says this. He says, put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual sin, impurity, lust, and shameful desires. Don't be greedy for the good things of this life. For this is idolatry. And you might want to circle the phrase put to death. Put to death. Don't resuscitate this, kill it. And, and this is the stuff we've talked about before is being nailed to Christ's cross. The sinful nature nailed to Christ's cross is done with um, forever and ever. And, 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 and this is, in my analogy earlier, this is the, the rotting deck, right? This is the, the siding that's water damaged. Like that, you gotta pull that stuff off. You gotta get rid of that stuff. Don't just cover it up. Don't just paint on it. Like get rid of that stuff that's rotten. And this idea of putting it to death. I was talking to a buddy of mine this week. And he was saying, Mike, I, I, I want you to know I love Jesus. I really do. I trust Jesus and I'm trying to follow Jesus. He said, but I read passages like this and it's so discouraging to me because I still, I, I do have sinful temptations. I, I do have lustful temptations. Like that, that just, it's a part of what it means for me to be on this journey with Jesus is they just, they come into my mind and, and because it's, you know, Halloween this week, I think I had an analogy for him. I, I said, uh, so the Bible says, put that stuff to death. And he's like, yeah, no, I get it, and I do. And, and I said, but it keeps coming back. And he says, yeah. And I said, it's like a zombie, okay? That's what it is. The, 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 this, this idea of sinful temptation, it's, it's like a zombie, right? You put it to death, and it just comes out of the grave and, like, oh, your brains, you know, whatever. And it, it just attacks you, and, and so you put it to death again. And it still comes back again. So you put it to death again. It, it becomes like a pattern of your default. I, friends, this is why The Walking Dead is a thing, right? Like there's another season of it or whatever. It's just because they just keep coming. So you just keep putting it to death. And, and the Apostle Paul says, don't let it make a home, right? Because that sin nature is already gone. And so what it is that we embrace is something that looks totally different. Okay, he goes on in verse 6. Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things when your life was still a part of this world. So you can circle a couple of words just to, to jump out. Anger is one of them, and used to is, is another couple. And the idea of God's anger coming, I really spent some time dwelling on it this week because I believe that as followers of Jesus, we misunderstand what the wrath of God is about. 
We, we misunderstand what the anger of God is about and what it's for. And, and so often when we are reading the scripture, we think his anger burns against us because we've stumbled in sin. Or his anger burns against people. You, you and I, we need to understand that the, the wrath of God is, it's done. That, that Jesus on the cross has paid the penalty for sin Totally, that, that, that there is no longer wrath of God against those who are in Christ Jesus. So there is anger of God, but you got to understand what it's for. And the anger of God is actually for you, not against you. Amen. Pastor Pat found this, uh, this uh, video clip I want to show you. It, this is from uh, Paul Young. He's a pastor. He's an author. And this is what he says uh, about God's anger. And it really helps clarify. So go ahead and watch this video. George MacDonald, who we both care for greatly, who is one who led Lewis into a deeper sense of the presence of God, he writes this, if you trust the goodness of God, you will run to this God with your arms wide open and you will say, please judge me to the core and burn out of me everything that keeps me from being fully human and fully alive because this God loves you and is opposed to anything that is not of love's kind. Uh, we have a daughter who for 10 years has been fighting a micropituitary adenoma. It's a brain tumor. It sits on the backside of her pituitary gland. It is so small that it's inoperable with today's technology still. And for the first couple years, it really put her down. And uh, during that time, that little piece of tissue began to have the power to make an accusation against her soul. Hmm speaking of the healing of the soul. And the whisper was, you're damaged goods. You're not enough. You're damaged goods. And because of that whisper, she began to believe a lie. And because of that lie, she opened herself up without being able to stand for herself in a particular relationship that was very, very hurtful, which she is now healed from. I'm her dad. Give me the power to be a flaming fury. Hmm. And I would go into that little piece of tissue and I would destroy it. Because fury is the right response to things that are wrong. And give me even greater fury and I would destroy the lie that hurt the one I love. That originates in the heart of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is not because my daughter has disappointed me or because she has failed to live up to some expectation. She's my daughter. I love her because she exists, not because she has performed at all. And I would be the flame of fury that is on her behalf. This is relentless affection. This is the wrath of God that is opposed to anything in your life that keeps you from being fully alive and fully free. And if that means to expose the darkness that's in your heart, it is only because of love. It is only because of love. All right, Paul. Did you guys get that? That's, that's pretty incredible, is it not? The idea of God's wrath coming against anything that steals the life of the one he loves. You're the one he loves. 
is his, his, his wrath that comes to, to destroy anything that is, is seeking to destroy you. That, that it's, it's on your behalf that God's anger comes, not against you that God's anger comes. Does this make sense, friends? Are you with me? That, that this is, <laughs> uh, a couple of you are, it's wonderful. I'm so glad <laughs> a few of you are, are there. It, it's, it's so exciting to me to recognize that when we get this right, our loving Heavenly Father will fight on our behalf. Now think about it, based on the analogy we just heard, Paul's talking about sexual sin, he's talking about greed, he's talking about some other thing. What do you think the lies are that these, that these sins end up implanting? That sexual sin has something to say about what it will take to satisfy you as a human. That, that it has something to say about who you are as a human. That it has anything to say with your worth as a human. Are you with me? And God's anger comes against that because that's a lie that we end up building identity on and it's not true or helpful. Greed is the same thing. By the way, greed and lust are very, very similar in terms of their temptation. It's just the desire for more and more and more. So greed comes and says, if you had a little more, then you'd be happy. If you had a little more, then you'd be valuable. If you had a little more, then people would look at you and say, oh, what a big deal he or she is, right? That's a lie. And so God's anger comes against the lie that we end up believing. Why? Not to punish us, but to set us free. That's where God's anger comes into play. And so, friends, I just hope you understand. You are so loved by your heavenly father. You are so loved. And he does not sit idle while you just get beat up spiritually. His anger comes because these sins and these temptations come. And he wants us free. Okay, let's go. Verse 8. Now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. Now is the time. And then the Greek imagery of that phrase, get rid of, is that of putting off dirty clothes. So now is the time to take those dirty clothes off. I just want you to know I have two teenage boys in my home, right, living with me. And there are times when I walk into their bedrooms and I can just know instantly, now is the time for you to change those clothes and wash them, right? You know what that means. Like you, this is what Paul's saying. Now is the time. Take off these filthy clothes, right? And he lists some anger and rage and malicious behavior and slander, dirty language, that kind of thing. And, and, and there's a heartbeat behind it, right? The Lord wants to deconstruct the things that are unhelpful in our lives. He wants us to take apart the stuff that's still rotting and, 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 and we can't build on that stuff. So he says, let's get rid of that. Then he says in verse 9, don't lie to each other, for you have stripped off your old evil nature and all its wicked deeds. And again, that, that word stripped off, there's that metaphor again of just removing this clothing. By the way, the interesting thing is in this analogy, it is something you take off. It's not something that you are. You are not your clothing. Are you following me? You are not what you're wearing. And so Paul's saying, don't get confused with your identity here. You are a beloved child of God. You might have put on some clothes that are unbecoming. It's time to take those things off. Okay. 
Uh, every once in a while, by the way, I love to read the message paraphrase of Scripture because I think Eugene Peterson has been, uh, he was given such a gift of poetry and, and, and he's able to communicate concepts so beautifully. So this is what the message paraphrase says uh, in this passage. He says, don't lie to one another. You're done with that old life. It's like a filthy set of ill-fitting clothes you've stripped off and put in the fire. Now you're dressed in a new wardrobe. Every item of your new way of life is custom made by the creator with his label on it. All the old fashions are now obsolete. <laughs> I just think that's so cool. I don't know anything about fashion, by the way. <laughs> but this, this is really, this sounds like a, a beautiful wardrobe here. And, and, and the process that we're on, that Paul's talking about, theologians have a word for. And the process is the word sanctification. It means we are in the process of being sanctified more and more and more in our lives. And it will go on as long as we are on this journey on planet Earth. As long as we're in this body, as long as we're on this journey of life, this process of God working in us and helping us as we cooperate with him to take off the stuff that does not please him, that does not grow our character toward Christ's likeness, he will help us remove that stuff in order that we might put on the things that we do, uh, you know, develop into Christ's likeness. And there's a reason why we push back as humans. We push back as humans because often we come to God and we only want a little bit of his help. We only want his help for like repainting the house. But God says, before I repaint the house, I got to do all this work. And, and often we don't like that. C.S. Lewis, he's such a great author and is able to communicate in such clear analogy. This is what he says about this hesitation. He says, when I was a child, I often had a toothache. And I knew that if I went to my mother, she would give me something which would deaden the pain for that night and let me get to sleep. But I did not go to my mother, at least not till the pain became very bad. And the reason I did not go was this. I did not doubt she would give me the aspirin, but I knew she would also do something else. I knew she would take me to the dentist next morning. I could not get what I wanted out of her without getting something more, which I did not want. I wanted immediate relief from the pain, but I could not get it without having my teeth set permanently right. And I knew those dentists. I knew if they started fiddling about with all sorts of other teeth, which had not yet begun to ache, they would not let sleeping dogs lie. If you gave them an inch, they took a mile. <laughs> and you know, with dentists, pulling teeth is not the goal, unless, you know, they're just sadists or whatever. The dentists have a goal, and the goal is oral health. And yeah, there might be a tooth that needs to be removed in order to create oral health. But I hope you understand that the same thing is true with God. See, with God, the fixation that God has is not on sin removal. That's not his fixation. Not, that's not what the whole story is about. Yes, he wants to remove the sin patterns and the, the default sins in our lives. Why? Because he wants to deconstruct that stuff that's unhelpful so that he can construct something beautiful in your life. That's his goal. And that's the next fill in here. The idea is reconstruction that the Lord is very active and proactive about building a character like Christ in you and in me. See, Jesus, he's actively working in our lives to build this new character, to put on this new nature so that we are exhibits of this new kingdom reality. And, and our character is to be conformed to that of the character 
of Christ. There's a word, renewal. And Paul uses that word often. We're going to read it in just a moment. This idea of renewal or being renewed. And, and the concept is to be made like new again. Amen. And so what Jesus is up to is he is up to rediscovering that original glory, the thumbprints of original glory that were on humans before sin entered the world. And so Jesus has come to remove that sin and remove that sin nature and to restore us to that original glory. And so we cooperate with him, the apostle Paul says in verse 10, by putting on your new nature. Put on your new nature, he says, and be renewed. There's that word again. As you learn to know your creator and become like him. So the sin nature is, it's to be thrown out, right? We've already talked about it's crucified to the cross. Now we're, we're taken off the behavior of our sin nature, like throwing away old clothes, and we're to be renewed and refreshed and growing to be like Jesus. And then he says in verse 11, in this new life, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free, Christ is all that matters, and he lives in all of us. So in your margin of your notes, you might just want to write this down. That before the cross, the playing field is level. The playing field is absolutely level before the cross. In other words, all throughout human history, in every society that has existed on planet Earth, uh, culture has sought to put labels on people. And to, to divide up people in terms of categories. And so the Apostle Paul is just calling that out. You know, Jew or Gentile. And what's better or what's worse. What, what has certain rights and privileges in one context. What has certain rights and privileges in another. Who do I treat well? Who don't I treat well? It's like he's saying, look, society's always done this. Jew and Gentile. Slave or free. Civilized, barbaric, uncivilized. You know, uneducated. Like all, no matter what kind of category you put people in. Paul says before the cross, all of that's gone. And the only thing you need to know is that Christ loves you perfectly as you are. And all that matters is his love. All that matters is Jesus. All that matters is who you are in him. That's what matters. So the Apostle Paul's trying to get really, really clear about how we're all in this thing together. And then in verse 12, he says, since God chose you, to be the holy people whom he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. So, again, we take off stuff in order to put stuff on. We deconstruct in order to reconstruct. And what we're putting on here is mercy. And how beautiful is mercy to extend mercy to someone when you could exact judgment. It's just such a beautiful kingdom concept. Humility, humility is so huge. Why? Because who is more humble than Jesus? Right? So humility perfectly exudes the character of Christ in our world where any punk can be proud. Humble is the way to go. And, and you just keep going through that list. You've, you've got mercy. You've got kindness. Oh, kindness is, is an act of courage in our world today. And, and then gentleness and, and finally patience. You know, patience is just one of those things. You realize that patience is on every list 
that is written in the New Testament. It is always added to those lists. And I just hope you know, it drives me crazy. It's just so hard for me. because, And I just want to say, don't ever pray for patience. No, that's not true. Pray for patience. That's fine. Let me tell you what will happen when you pray for patience. That's what I meant. Let me tell you what, because I've done it. I've prayed for patience. And here's what God does. If I pray for patience, God does not give me patience. God puts me in situations where patience is required. And it just kills me. I'm like, come on, God. This is taking too long, you know. And that was a joke, by the way. I get it, patience, taking too long. Come on, Deb, you're with me. But I'm telling you, this is what we put on. This is what we wear, right? This is, this is what we're building, and we're building it. Why? Because our character is to be conformed to the character of Christ. He keeps going. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. You might just want to circle, forgive, forgave, forgive. And the forgiveness of God is predicated on the cross of Calvary, right? Grace is now extended to all of us. It's just poured out. The world now has access to the grace of God because of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so because of the grace of Jesus offered to me, I am now to offer that same forgiveness and grace to others, those who, who have wounded me. And, and that's a challenging thing, but I want you to understand that, that just so you know, I have been forgiven, therefore I forgive. That's the equation. The equation is not someone has wounded me and they deserve forgiveness, now I must forgive them. Does that make sense? Because so often we want it to be like that. Uh, we hear the, the biblical command to forgive and we're like, um, but they didn't ask for forgiveness. You have to understand, you're not forgiving for that person's sake. You're forgiving for your sake. Forgiveness is a gift you give yourself. Forgiveness is like unlocking the cage and discovering that you're the one set free. So God wants you to forgive. Why? Because this is how you become like Christ. This is how you continue to pursue the spiritual journey and the, the construction of his character in your life. That's why forgiveness is so important. And you say, well, I, I can't do it. I, I, I don't know how to do it. I don't have the strength to do it. I just want you to understand you can ask Jesus for help. Because nobody understands forgiveness like Jesus. Jesus is, bar none, the, the most forgiving person that has ever lived planet Earth. On the cross, after he had been beaten and mocked and spit upon, had his beard pulled from his face, the crown of thorns on his head, nailed to a tree, says, Father, forgive them, the ones who did this to me, for they don't know what they're doing. He understands forgiveness. He will help you forgive. And then you say, well, Mike, why is it that the Bible commands forgiveness? Why is it that that's such an issue that comes up? And, and I just, I, I kind of want you to think it through from God's perspective. You do realize that God loves you, right? And that God loves the person next to you. And that God loves the people on your row and everyone in this room and then everyone in this region and everyone in this world. Like you, his love isn't like just on, he, he loves everybody. And he wants us to be living in harmony. He wants us to have love and peace and, and, and be able to get along. I, I was recalling this week that there was a Father's Day a couple of years ago. And my kids and my wife decided for Father's Day that they were going to make me breakfast. 
And so they're all in the kitchen, and I kind of wake up, and I hear a lot of activity in the kitchen, and, and there's, like, laughter, and everybody's into it. And, and then they come, and they jump on my bed, and they invite me down. I go down, and we all sit around the table, and we have breakfast together. It was like a Norman Rockwell painting. It was just so beautiful. And I had a, it was a great Father's Day, great way to honor me. But I will tell you, what if... It had so happened that as they were making breakfast, they just started to get annoyed with each other. And they started arguing with each other. And, and they, they were arguing about what to make and about how to make it and about who would make it. And, and pretty soon that argument turned to insults. And they were throwing insults at one another. And next thing you know, there were food being thrown at one another. And then blows being thrown at one another. And, it, you know, I don't know about you, but in my house, I don't have to imagine too far. Like, I, that's a, pretty easy to imagine all that stuff. And, and so... So what if that had happened? You know, as a dad, I don't want one kid to win over the other kid. I don't, I don't want to rub one kid's nose in their sin and, and glorify the other one. Like, like, I just want them, well, what would you want? If, if you're the dad, what do you want in that scenario? Bacon, right? Like, that's what, no. You want, you want love. You want peace. You want harmony. You want... You want them to get together as brothers and sisters and figure it out and live in love and, and, and live together well. And what else does God want but that? Right? That's what the Lord wants for all of his children. So that's why he wants us to live together in peace and, and grace and forgiveness. He's poured out grace for us. Now we offer it to one another. Okay, and, and then it goes on. Well, let me see. Where am I here? I'm not even on the right page. Okay. I'm preaching too much. I'm sorry. I got to stick to the notes here. All right. Verse 14. He says, above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. Clothe yourselves with love, which binds us together in perfect harmony. He wants us living together in perfect harmony. How do we do that? We clothe ourselves with love. Again, it feels like that fashion statement, you know? Oh, what's he wearing this season? He's wearing love. Love is so hot this year, you know? <laughs> like, clothe yourselves with love. Put this on. Let this be how you interact with one another. 15, and let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you're called to live in peace. Always be thankful. You know, if you're like me, you look at this list of things to be torn down. You look at this thing, list of things to be taken off. You look at these things to be built and to be put on. And, and honestly, when you think about where you are in this process, sometimes you come to a passage like this, and it can just make you so exhausted. And if that's you right now, I just want to encourage you with this truth, that you have the best contractor in the universe working for you in this project. Amen. You've got the greatest contractor in the universe who is personally invested in this new work that's being built in you. You need to understand, by the way, that in some very real context, spiritually speaking, that the work is already done. You are seated with Christ in the heavenlies in some very real way that, that the new nature and the righteousness of Christ and the character of Christ has already been achieved for you and on your behalf. Now, it's like the house has been built. Now we just need to move in. 
right? We just need to inhabit that space. It's, uh, it's an amazing thing to me to think about this. Paul says in, in Philippians 3.16, only let us live up to what we have already attained. We have already attained this. Now, let's lean into it. Let's cooperate with his spirit. Let's live up to what has already been purchased for us. And that's why when we talk about these things in a spiritual formation context, in a Christ-like formation context, we always talk about it with three tenses. We, we say things like, I am saved. It's true. I'm being saved. That's true. I will be saved. That's true. Past, present, and future tense. They're all true in our lives as we follow Jesus. We say, I, I have been made righteous. That's true. I am being made righteous. That's true. I will be made righteous. Also true. See, all these things are true because of this incredible, nuanced reality that Jesus actually has already built this house. That Jesus has already seated us with himself in the heavenlies. We just need to lean into and cooperate with and inhabit this space. And it makes me kind of go back to verse 1 in this chapter, chapter 3. He says, the Apostle Paul says, Since you have been raised to new life with Christ... Set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits at God's right hand in the place of honor and power. You process that verse, and what it means is, I am raised to new life in Christ. You are too. And so we are to set our sights on him. We are to let our gaze rest upon him. Verse 2, it says, think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God, your real life. You might want to circle that. You have to remind yourself, my real life is with Christ in heaven. And so we are to look up. We are to set our sights. We are to lift our gaze. It reminds me actually of Psalm 122, which says, I lift my eyes up to the heavens. Where does my help come from? My help comes from you, the maker of heaven. And of earth. And so we, we set our sights on heaven. We lift our gaze to the heavenlies where we see Christ seated at the right hand of God, where we see that our real life is hidden with Christ in God, in the heavenlies. Friends, that is a safety deposit box that no devil can break into. Right? That is a beautiful, beautiful picture of where your real life is hidden with him. And then in verse 4 it says, And when Christ, who is your real life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. You will share in all his glory. You are hidden with Christ in God, in the heavenlies, and when Christ is revealed, you will share, not in a little bit of his glory, not in, in some of his glory, not in a good amount of his glory. Friends, you will share in all of his glory. So I want you to understand this as far as the spiritual formation process is concerned, as far as the deconstructing is concerned and the reconstructing is concerned. This is so much more important for us to understand than simply a list of do's and don'ts. That's not what it's about. This is not about rules. This is about how we can embrace the work that Jesus Christ is doing in our lives today. 
You see, your nature, my nature, is not a sinful nature anymore. Because I have stripped it off, and I have put it to death, and it has been nailed to Christ's cross. And so I come to Jesus, and he's deconstructing anything within me that does not please him. Anything that steals life away from me. I want to confess to you, it would have been cheaper for him to just build new than it would be to buy used, right? But he knew the project that he had on his hands with me. And full willing, with full understanding, he purchased me with his lifeblood. And he invested in me. And he is building in me something that is beautiful. Something that will, is conformed to his character. Something that is an expression of his kingdom. Something that is so loved and so cherished as a beloved son of God most high. And that's true for you if you're trusting in Jesus Christ. That's true for you if you have said yes to him and are following him. He loves you whether you've said yes or not. But if you said yes to him, then the work is, at, is happening in you right now. And maybe you're here and you don't know if you have uh, ceded the deed over to him. Right? You don't know that if, if you've given him the deed to your life. And, and I just want to encourage you, today would be a great, great day to do that. A great day to say yes to the work of Jesus in your life. Amen. This would be a great day for you just to make sure that you know that you are in him. That you are seated with him in the heavenlies at the right hand of God. That you are, you are hidden with him. And that when he is revealed, all glory will be shared with you. You know, again, I want to go back to C.S. Lewis. I'm sorry that I've quoted him a couple of times today. You have to know, C.S. Lewis is just one of the most brilliant writers that I've ever come across in terms of his understanding of who God is and who we are in Christ. And and he's not perfect by any means, but he's just so good. One time, I I actually was, uh, I had to write a manuscript. It was for one of my book projects. And so I have a manuscript that's due sort of at the end of July. And so at the, uh, in June, I thought, well, I'm going to read a couple of really good books and get me inspired to write this manuscript, and so I opened up Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, and I read the entire book, and it was the worst decision I had ever made to read somebody so brilliant and then sit down at a typewriter and think that, you know, I, uh, uh, I see Mere Christianity. Like, like it's just, it was just n- such a bad idea, but here's what I want you to understand. I want you to understand that what, what, what C.S. Lewis is talking about is this work of God constructing something beautiful in your life. And this is what he says. He says, well, what on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor here, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. And that's true for you. And that's true for me. And I wish you would write this down somewhere on your notes. I am a palace for the Lord. I am a palace for the Lord. You know, some of you, you struggle with that phrase because you think, you know, I don't look like a palace. Maybe you hear a, a voice in your head says, you're not a palace. Maybe there's another voice in your sphere of influence, somebody else, maybe a friend who just delights in reminding you of who you were before Jesus came to town. And maybe it's their voice you hear saying, you're not a palace, you're just that old shack. And here's what I want you to say, not anymore. 
Not anymore. Because in Christ, the old things have gone away. And behold, the new has come. I want you to bow your heads, close your eyes, and let's pray. And Jesus, we just want to say to you, thank you. Thank you for purchasing this old house with your blood on the cross of Calvary. Though we knew it was a bit run down, we, we figured you'd have to paint it, but we had no idea you had such a project on your hands. And I want to say thank you for knowing exactly what you were getting into with me, and you bought us still. And I'm so thankful you did. Thank you. And I, Jesus, I just ask that you would show me now how to lean into your work within me. I ask this on behalf of all my brothers and sisters in this room. Show me how we might cooperate with your Holy Spirit working, deconstructing what needs to be removed, reconstructing that original glory that you have in mind, that Christ-like character that will allow me to live the fullest and richest and most free life there is. Jesus, do your good work in us. Find us obedient and faithful to cooperate fully with your spirit. We love you. What you want for our lives, Jesus, we, we declare today, we want that as well. And so we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.